Good morning. I'm Alex Mosed, and we're here on Winner Take All, where we talk about all things big tech monopolies and basically what incumbents and traditional enterprises are doing to try and combat this uh, this ever ever changing landscape amongst big tech. Um, so we have a few things to go over today uh, about. Basically, there's an article saying that Silicon Valley tech companies are um, creating their own Chinese-esque social credit rating system. It's fake news. Um, the Wall Street Journal is launching a content platform to aggregate news articles from a variety of publishers to try and rival things like Google News um, and Apple News. Um, Epic and Cerner are now in the, uh, I guess, limelight. Um, unfortunately for them, Apple signed a deal with Allscripts, which is, I think, maybe top four or five EHR company. And so we're going to talk about what's going on in the world of medical. We touched on this a little bit when we were talking about GE uh, in the last episode. And a plan in Platt announced earnings uh, this morning. They beat and we're going to dig into that. And what is this company and a plan? Um, and then also in the B2B distribution industry in general, we've spoken about a lot of specific verticals, um, but holistically what's going on in B2B and, and why is that a big deal? So here's this articles and fast company. Uh Oh, Silicon Valley is building a Chinese style social credit system. Um, honestly, this to me is just a symptom of media companies not making any money and needing to have clickbaity uh, titles. This was, I think, their lead article recently. And um, I'm joined by Nick Johnson, uh, co-author on Modern Monopolies. And fake news. It's fake news. I mean, <laughs> the examples they give are that you can you can be kicked off of Uber if you have a less, you know, a, a drastically less than average uh, passenger rating on Uber, you can be kicked off of Airbnb. Um, that's just a private these, company. These are basically internal quality scores that they're using to regulate their own ecosystems. These companies wouldn't exist without these things. They're not using them in a broader sense to then go and like open this up to start making decisions about who has access to you know certain kinds of airline tickets or public transportation or uh, you know loans and financial products the way that the you know Chinese system is aspiring to do. So it's really not even remotely the same thing. All it's basically saying is, hey, these platforms have data on you and use them to understand to, your behavior to, in that network. It's actually part of the core <laughs> functions of the platform, right. which is to um, curate access and usage. Right. So and the, in these the usage, literally you want to have not good behavior. At the scale that they do, if you didn't have these kinds of rating what, mechanisms. What would be troublesome, they give an example of a um, health insurance company that is scanning your social media posts. Okay. But it's not like Facebook is giving the health insurance company their score on you right. and collaborating or getting paid. Um, I did see there's a this toothbrush that came out, which is then going to help you buy a dental insurance based on your usage of the toothbrush. But again, these companies aren't collaborating a with each other and b what's happening in china is it's with the government so like it's <laughs> these these worlds are so far apart that's why you know some of these articles i mean just come on guys now what is interesting so news corp is news corp honestly out of all the traditional incumbents so you know we talk a lot about on the show how are incumbents incumbents have a lot of advantages to try and rival big tech just they're really not using those advantages as well as they could be um, and unfortunately you just don't see a lot of incumbents even trying. That's the big problem these days. Um, uh, News Corp is actually one of the companies that has tried and failed. If you remember, they bought a company called MySpace, <laughs> uh, many, many years ago. And I think now it's worth like $30 million. Um, so, you know, still, still exists, by the way, if you go to myspace.com, there is still a myspace.com. It is nothing like. I think, it's, I think it's linear now. I think yeah, they, it's like they news, create all music the content, content yeah. something like that. Um, so at least News Corp has been trying. I give them credit for that. But now it looks like they're launching this thing called News, K-N-E-W-Z. Um, and what it, what is this thing? What's your understanding, Nick? So the way I would describe it is it's basically designed as an aggregator for news services. So they're, they're, ta they're taking you know all of the major news publications so not just the new york times but a lot of like direct not online. just the wall street journal yeah not just the wall street journal new york times you know all the big cnn big kind of news channels 
and outlets, it's like, you know, smaller, only digital publications. And the idea here is that, oh, we can give these guys more exposure. Uh, but basically what they're doing is taking all this in and just displaying it on their on their mobile app and website, um, from what I understand, and then linking out to it. So, like, yeah. you're, you're going to click and go directly like to that report. new source. Right. The analogy I would use is just like a high-end drudge report. It's right. a link aggregator. Yep. Uh, they're not retaining any ad revenue from sending in the source. Yep. Uh, they don't have any. It's like un- Google News. It's like they don't Apple have any News. unique content that's going right. to drive the like you know network effect that would actually make this thing uh, you know better or different than say Google. Right. Um, which is the challenge I see here is that they've basically just you know we're going to suck in everything that's out there and send it out in a way that's uh, nicer to publishers than uh, than Google is. Right. I think the, the challenge that I have with this is they're solving a problem for themselves, not for users. So yeah, if I'm a user, what is the reason I'm going to go do this as opposed to the eight other things yeah. that provide similar maybe, services? Maybe like the, 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 the publications that are on there <clears throat> give you like a cheaper bundle to, you know, get behind the paywall or something. Cause right. that's or a maybe big maybe problem. You get, if you go through that, you know, you get an extra few articles a month free right. that you can use before you have to subscribe. Exactly. Or something. But uh, short, short of, yeah, short of that kind of stuff. But either of those really aren't game changers. Right. I mean, this has been done and it's been around for years. So, but at least, you know, it's hey, a good effort. we got to give them credit for trying. And if this, if this works, then it's just a foothold for them to try other, I think, much more exciting um, content platform models um, <clears throat> where especially maybe they could use this to actually branch out into user generated content. Right. This is still all coming from, you know, actual kind of publications and news organizations. I think, I think they're definitely, uh, it's encouraging to see, you know, traditional media companies start to expand and start to try to figure out this platform approach. I think mm-hmm. it's uh, overdue. And I think, uh, you know, I definitely give credit to News, news Corp for trying. I think they're going to run into some challenges just based on the way this is set up. But if, it, if it's, uh, you know, not the end result and part of an evolution for them and they keep moving forward on this, I think that's definitely a good start. Mm-hmm. So, um, so Anaplan, I don't think many people really know uh, what Anaplan is. Anaplan, uh, the ticker is plan. Um, it's in plat. One, one letter away on the ticker. Yeah. And it's basically a collaboration software. Um, you know, it's connecting all the different, you know, the way they describe it is all the different functions, finance, sales, supply chain, marketing, and, and kind of helping to link all the data and help people collaborate, um, and share information in large enterprises. Um, so it's, it's an interesting company. You can see here, they have an app hub. So they're now trying to let people, you know, build other third-party apps on, on top of, um, the different portals and, and software that they have. I think this is still somewhat fledgling, but even, you know, this would be a a dev platform, even just the majority of their business, which is the collaboration type of platform model. Right. Um, which who else would be in that Slack would be in that, um, Atlassian Australian company in plat would be in that. If you think about what Google docs is today, right. It's really that kind of Microsoft teams, which is its Slack competitor, Microsoft teams, Google docs. It's all this kind of collaboration, communication type of network effect type of platform model. Um, so basically what's interesting about this company is, so they announced earnings this morning, but look at their six month performance, um, since being public. Right. And you can kind of see how this trajectory um, has bucked a lot of the curve of the rest of the stock market over this past period of time, which has been, you know, much lumpier. Um, <clears throat> but it IPO'd at about $25, $26. Today, it's at $57. I actually think that they missed earnings. Markets just opened. They're down about 4% here. But what's interesting are some of these more unknown, this is only a 7 7.7 billion market cap company. It it IPO'd at you know um, almost almost uh, you know a third of that roughly. Um, so these are s- quote unquote small platform companies have a lot of growth left in them. Right, it hasn't been public for long at all. It went public uh, earlier this year. So. Um, you know, there's there's actually a number of these that we found when doing the research on what are all the public platform companies that are out there. Um, and then these kinds of companies that we came across that we just 
we really, really weren't familiar with. I mean, it, it's not a small company, but it's not a massive tech monopoly. Right. <clears throat> but these are the kinds of companies really that I think when you really look at the movers and shakers for Platt and for platform businesses in general, these are exactly the kinds of companies to really be watching over the next five years to say, hey, how are these companies going to do? There, there were actually a number of older platform companies that we saw, like an Amex, like a MasterCard, like a Copart, uh, a Ritchie Brothers, you know, especially some of the financial services, you know, the ICE, the NASDAQ, um, these kinds of companies, which they've been around, doesn't take anything away from them. But of the 70 companies that were initially in the index, there was a good chunk of them, I think maybe a little less than it was a, it was the, the median year of IPO was, I think, 2011, right? So you actually had a, a decent chunk of companies that had been around for a while. So that was um, pretty interesting and interesting thing to highlight here. Just yesterday, Apple announced that it signed a deal to integrate all Scripps EHR data into its Apple Health Records platform. Um, okay, so EHR, if you don't know, is the electronic health record. All Scripps. So here's the breakdown of uh, market share. Epic and, Epic and Cerner are the two big giants in the space. Uh, they comprise over 50% of the market. Um, All Scripps is number five. The health record data is, all right, I go to a doctor, I go to a hospital, I get something done, and okay, now that, that record needs to be stored um, to comply with HIPAA, um, which basically just provides a lot of privacy standards and, and, and uh, data standards that hospitals have to comply with. And it's a big reason why Epic and Cerner and these EHR companies um, have been able to corner this market. The interesting thing with this, so Apple saying, okay, I want to get access to the health record. But the, the problem with this is that what these hospitals do is, so, you know, there's the idea of Salesforce of in the cloud, right? So it's SaaS software and it's in the cloud. What happens with EHR systems is they don't like the cloud. It's on-premise. That's the old version. That's what it was around pre-Salesforce. Salesforce has been around for a while now. So pre-Salesforce, you had on-premise. So what happens is they give you a solution. And then the hosp every hospital system customizes that solution. So it might solve 80% of your needs but then you're going to customize 20% of it. And that's probably going to take you two years and cost you a few hundred million dollars to integrate it into all your different hospitals, right? If you have a hundred different hospitals, you have different, you have completely different kind of healthcare departments within that. They may have a different workflow. They want it customized 20% here or there. Here's what happens with that. It makes getting the data off of those servers, on-premise servers, into a centralized database like the Apple Health Records database, an absolute nightmare. Okay. It doesn't work. <laughs> Basically, what has to happen, this deal is nice. Okay. It's nice. But this doesn't mean that Apple now gets access to every EHR record from every hospital that is using all scripts. What it means is it gets Apple farther along and now they can go to hospitals with all scripts right. and have a bundled package to let them now share data into the Apple health system. But it's still going to require work, probably on an individual hospital healthcare system by healthcare system basis, A. And B, none of this really matters unless me, the patient, goes through a most likely very arduous process to agree that I am going to let Apple and all scripts put my data into Apple system. And then I can now view that data in Apple system and all this stuff. So I actually don't think they're going to get much usage from this net net. Well, I think it's a start, certainly. And, you know, the, for all scripts, it makes a lot of sense being fifth to try to do something that can help them move up and be attractive Yeah, uh, to you know, new customers. But, uh, yeah, it, it, the whole system, the way it's basically designed right now is not, uh, not very user-friendly. And 
uh, you know, that data is still very locked down and more, uh, in some cases, I would describe it as overprotected uh, in a way that is going to prevent a lot of this actually happening. Now, here's the interesting thing. Wow, honestly, I don't even believe these numbers. There is, there is zero, there is zero way that Epic did two and a half billion dollars in revenue in 2016. I, I, I absolutely do not believe this number. Um, <laughs> they have 28% market share and they're making $2.5 billion in revenue. Okay. I didn't even know that. I'm a little off topic, but that's a fake number. Um, a. B. Too low or too high? Way too low. Um, way too low. I mean, it, like Oracle. What's Oracle's revenue? Massive. I mean, Oracle's in every industry, but Oracle's doing $40 billion in revenue. These guys have 28% of the EHR industry. You're telling me that the entire EHR industry in 2016 was a $10 billion revenue business for EHR software? Not a chance. Okay. Anyway, here's the problem with Epic. Even if this number was true, which is not, Epic could make drastically more money if they were to embrace what Salesforce has done, which is two things. One, go to the cloud. Step one. B, step two, let third-party developers get access to the EHR records. And because, again, when you're not in the cloud and you don't have as much standardization and centralization of the data, really now what needs to happen, if you want to get access to the EHRs, you have to go hospital by hospital. Sure, this, this Apple Allscripts thing helps you. But still, if you want to get access to the EHR data, you really need to go hospital system by hospital system. You need to have separate contracts with every hospital. It takes a very long time. It's expensive. It's arduous. I mean, there's just so many things that just make it unbelievably difficult to scale. Okay, so you got to go get all the hospitals on board or you could go to the cloud. Okay, then you have to open up the data and you can let third-party developers build software on that. Here's my other problem with this Apple thing. Um, I don't think it's as easy to monetize. If I'm a third-party software developer and I'm making apps, I think it's a much richer audience and you can provide much more utility to, a cons to the consumer being a physician or a nurse or a doctor, right? Um, in a hospital or in a clinic, as opposed to the consumer being right. the patient. And I think when you look at the world of third-party apps that can be created, um, if I have access to the EHR records, what are all the apps that I could go and create, right? I can scan those medical records. I can go and say, hey, you know, you are probably more susceptible to this disease, or you should probably look at getting this medication. Or Salesforce has entire apps that aren't even looking and, and having intelligence about the data, they have entire apps that are just there to help you clean up the data and make the data more rich and complete and thorough, right? So then there's entire, there's a whole field of apps just to do data cleanup and data quality improvements yep. separate from alone from just inferring from that and then helping to basically just keep people healthier and reduce costs in the health system, which is a huge problem. Clearly healthcare is I think 15% of the GDP and just continues to go up by 10 or 20% every year in costs. I mean, it's insane. And um, so if Epic were to be able to be in the Salesforce position of being an EHR that was in the cloud that had third-party app developers creating software for physicians and then Epic could take, say, 30% take rate on the money spent on those third-party software apps. It would be such a fundamental game changer right. in their business model. And then what they could do is they could actually, I mean, Salesforce hasn't even really, I mean, Salesforce still has a premium SaaS cost for just the SaaS software. But there is much more fragmentation seemingly in this than I think in the world of CRM, right? I think it's, you know, there's... There's more consolidation there. I think Salesforce has a much stronger position in CRM than probably what's going on in the EHR world. But I think the, <clears throat> the difference here is that you know, Salesforce came in as a challenger. It wasn't Oracle that said, oh, hey, let's go do all this SaaS right. stuff when we had on-prem business that was doing very well because it made 
tons of money the same way that you know epic and cerner and these guys are doing this current model is very profitable there's huge lock-in costs once you get a customer in because again that process of Changing to another system is just not really feasible in the current mm-hmm. model versus a you know a SaaS model that is a little more uh, extensible and lightweight in terms of installation uh, is a lot easier to switch. Um, so that you know, from that point of view, oh, why would I go to the system where these lower switching costs? Uh, I could see why they've resisted that. I think the other issue here is regulation. So CRM software and that kind of sales data is not nearly as regulated as health data is. Uh, and for good reason. So I think that you know, the regulation on this is starting to catch up. Uh, it's moving slowly, but I think we're moving in the direction where this kind of thing will become feasible where it might not have been you know, yeah. five years ago. So I think, I think that's a starting point is you get access to the HR data. You build a community of third-party software developers that are um, looking at uh, you know, diagnostic information that are looking at how you can um, help the physician make better decisions. Um, as well as doing data cleanup and data quality and those kinds of things. That's a multi-billion dollar industry right there. Easily. Okay. But you got to get enough scale that you can have enough access to enough health records um, that, um, you know, you can make it worthwhile for the third-party software developer. You have to help the third-party software developer monetize. You have to figure out how you can get the physician to be able to spend money on third-party apps. And maybe there's a rev share with the with the healthcare system. Now that would be if you are the platform and you can basically prevent the healthcare system from getting a a rev share on that, then that's a big win, right? Otherwise, if the hospitals could team up and create some kind of consortium to demand some kind of rev share, that'd be very smart on the hospitals. Um, but that's phase one to me. I mean, I think when you look at saying so, the healthcare industry just hasn't had access to this information which is a joke. And it's actually my biggest gripe against Epic and Cerner is yes, there hasn't been the income, the challenger, the Salesforce challenger, but this industry needs it badly. And I actually feel no um, sympathy or empathy for the uh, Epics and Cerners of the world. If the challenger comes in and disrupts Epic and Cerner, because what the problem is not only could they make more money by doing this, but they could um, actually save people's lives, right. reduce the cost of care and improve people's lives. So it isn't just about who's making money and who's dominating market share. It's, it's really about, are you saving people's lives and lowering the cost of care? And that I think is really why Epic and Cerner should actually have a big target on their back and, and should feel guilty that they aren't taking a more proactive approach on this. But then once you have that community going and you have access to the HR, that's just the first phase of this, right? right. The next phase is, so I have, what I've got up here is Verily. And this is um, Google's spin-out company. Verily is basically trying to do a marketplace for clinical trials, okay? Um, so what that means is when you want to do a clinical trial, it's very fragmented, okay? Checkbox for marketplaces to reduce friction, increase transparency, connect that information. So it's very fragmented. There are tens of thousands of what you would call investigator sites, which are basically um, doctors and clinics that will work with patients that could then go through a clinical trial. And you need the doctor to monitor the patient and the patient needs to come in regularly. Most of the time, some, some stuff you can do remotely, but it's very high touch. It's very expensive to do clinical trials. It's very hard just to find the patients to participate in the clinical trial because you really want to finally curate who's doing that so that you can, as the drug company, get the optimal result from the clinical trial and then your drug gets approved and you make a bunch of money. Okay. It's a very expensive process and it takes years and years and years. Okay. Highly fragmented on the just finding the doctors and the investigator sites. A. B. Highly fragmented then to just get access to the patients. Um, There have been entire acquisitions built solely on the thesis that if we get access to EHR data, we can improve our ability to successfully execute clinical trials. Example, um, Flatiron Health getting acquired by Roach. Um, GSK just did a partnership with 23andMe, which was based off of the same thesis on clinical trials. So this is phase two. So Verily has now announced a consortium with Novartis, Otsuka, 
Pfizer and Sanofi um, to basically go and use Verily's uh, technology and AI to basically run better clinical trials. Um, my problem with this is that they're focusing on multiple disease areas. Um, I think it's four different disease areas. And it just seems so big and so grand. And you're just trying to bite off such a, such a huge piece of this, right? So this will cover a range of clinical specialties, cardiovascular disease, mental health, and diabetes. Just do one. Just do one. Just do one and do it well. Just start small. Start small. <laughs> start small. Don't go do some big partnership in a big Google way. But focus on one disease area. I actually don't even want to know about it. I don't even want to know that there's a partnership. I just just go do it in stealth. Don't even tell anyone about it. Go do some, go do one or two trials and show how. Here's here's the thing, right? Where are you reducing friction from a marketplace standpoint? Are you reducing friction to find patients and to figure out who's going to go into the marketplace? I think that's a big hurdle. I think this is actually less focused on that. I think it's more focused on the monitoring of the patients right. and the data that you're getting from the patients. There's a, there's a lot of efforts with wearable and medical grade wearable devices and that kind of stuff to basically get more real time data from the patient. Yes. So you can... Uh, improve accuracy and potentially how many trials ultimately you would need to do to get the kind of data you need. And, and I think basically the theory there is I can have less participants in a trial to get enough basically critical mass to prove, to have a strong proof point of, you know, the outcome. Right. And net net, I should be able to do this faster, less people for less money. Right. That's the theory. Yeah. And part of, part of that is because you have, drop off in these trials. And if you can reduce that basically loss ratio of people that don't actually follow through and compete the whole thing, then that saves a lot of money. So let's go full circle. Going back to our in the cloud dominant marketplace of EHR records and, 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 and health record information, which starts out as an app marketplace. The next phase of this is a services marketplace to say, hey, I can now look at all these people in my centralized database of all these EHR records. And now I can say, oh my God, well, I would love for these people to come and participate in my trial. Um, let me get in touch with them. How could I find the physician? This is why the, I think this is a, a, the primary consumer in this, in this platform model is the physician right. first, patient second. Um, and this goes back to the whole thing about investigator sites. You, re you really want to embrace the physician. And then what's all the now software I can deliver to the physician through my app marketplace, my dev platform, to the physician to now run the clinical trial better, which is really, I think, where Verily's baseline project is more focused on. I actually see a huge hurdle and somewhat lower hanging fruit on the matchmaking and just finding who should participate in the trial first. As an entry point. So that's phase two for me of our grand vision of how to reinvent the healthcare industry here. What's phase three? Phase three is on drug discovery. Um, and this is where if you want to then look at saying, okay, now let's look at rare diseases. Rare diseases are diseases that affect less than 10,000 people. Um, so if you just think about big pharma, it's very hard for them to focus all the resources going back to the cost of doing a clinical trial. It's very hard for them to focus on actually doing the clinical trial and all that cost when just the potential customer base is relatively very small. Right. It's just very arduous. So um, rare diseases, what basically needs to happen is you need to democratize access to data and embrace an ecosystem model. The CEO of Novartis has kind of been picking around on this. He did a podcast with Andreessen a few months ago. You can tell he's kind of thinking about this. I don't think he's fully there yet, but he's kind of saying, how could I open this up? How could I open up the IP, the data that we have um, to biotech startups, to you know, a few researchers that just got their doctorate degree? Um, and, and, and subvert the VCs. You know, I think it's really been a lot of VCs that have been the ones kind of spawning biotech startups. I think instead what you're doing is finding 
tech entrepreneurs. Ways, ways to give them access without huge upfront costs. Exactly. And, and then you can now dive into this pool of data and say, hey, here's an opportunity for me to create a therapeutic to solve a rare disease in this area. Um, so there's a few, there's a few other block blockers that are usually involved with that, but those are, those are actually the, the, the huge initial hurdle points are just getting access to the data, trying to find, um, and validate your initial theory. And then you could go raise a round of VC. Um, it could be from the pharmas. It could be from traditional VCs. Right now, you've kind of gotten that initial validation. Right now, just getting access to the data and trying to say, hey, here's a theory. I want to commit myself to solving this, right? Um, and, and, and it's going to be very hard for big pharma to actually fund that stuff. Just if you have um, Novartis bought this company called Avexis, and Avexis basically solves the rare disease um, that causes blindness in the eye. They did it through uh, gene therapy. They use this thing called a viral vector. And basically what that means is use virus. It's, it's literally out of a Mission Impossible movie um, because you use like virus to deliver the drug, the therapeutic. Therapeutic isn't some fancy word. It just means drug. Okay, so you deliver the drug using virus to that part of the body. It's very actually hard to say if I do have the solution, if I have created the therapeutic to, to solve blindness in the eye, it's actually then very hard to actually deliver that drug to the eye and have the eye receive it. And then, so you can actually solve the disease. Um, So they use this thing called a viral vector. It's basically using virus to deliver the drug to the eye and it worked. And so um, I remember I was at uh, the Aspen health conference a couple of years ago with one of the founders of Avexis. And he was saying, I, there are 20 rare diseases in the eye. I solved one of them, or we solved one of them. We are now working on number two and number three, Novartis bought us for billions of dollars. And so he said, I can use the same viral vector, the same delivery truck mechanism to now deliver number two and number three and number four therapeutic to the eye. And I said, hold on, hold on. I think his name is Brian. I said, hold on, Brian. How much of this, is this 80% the same delivery truck, 90% same delivery truck, 100% same delivery truck? He goes, 100% the same delivery truck. I can use this now mechanism to deliver the therapeutic to that part of the eye. Um, That to me is a game changer. And especially now, if you think about having centralized access to health records, being able to now figure out, hey, I could solve maybe disease number 12 in the eye, which by the way, I don't know. Novartis will try and work on in like 2035. No offense to Novartis. It's just the economics of it. The economics right. of it. It's just. You're not going to go all the way down there. And then the other part of this, and I think where you can really see a democratization, democratization of access in drug discovery. To actually solve, say, rare diseases at scale by embracing who are the producers in this scenario? They're the small tech startups and biotech startups. But you're now giving them access to data. And then I think the other part of this is giving them access to IP, actual pharma IP. Um, Things like the delivery mechanism. You hear a lot about CRISPR, these CRISPR licenses being sold off for hundreds of millions or billions of dollars to pharma companies. And so they're using CRISPR, um, which is basically just another delivery mechanism. There's multiple delivery mechanisms. There's CRISPR, there's gene therapy, there's viral vectors, mRNA would fall into another one of those buckets. So just think about there's delivery mechanisms and then there's the data and the software to create the therapeutic. And pharma basically locks all this stuff up today. So how can you open that up and say, look, I'm never going to develop solution number 12. But hey, I would like to cure people's problems, cure blindness, and make some money off of it. I don't need to own 100% of the money. But if I can accelerate that drug discovery timeline and getting that drug to market by 10 or 20 years, which is realistic when you're talking about number 10 through 20 rare diseases in the eye. Um, And maybe you make 30% or 40% or hell 50% of a royalty on those drugs, but your, your exposure and capital is limited because you're now opening this up. I mean, that's a win, win, win. And so my hope is that again, I think that one is actually very far away, but the first step here is to open up data um, and start building this centralized 
database of health records, getting the physician involved, providing monetization down to tech startups. And then I think eventually you start to see this thing branch out into clinical trials and into drug discovery. But this is the starting point. And unfortunately, because of Epic and Cerner and just, you know, using kind of regulation like HIPAA as the scapegoat, um, we just haven't been able to see significant innovation or disruption in this industry. But hopefully so, it's time. So if they're not, if Epic or Cerner aren't the ones who are going to do this, where would this come from? Where would this kind of innovation push come from? This was my panel at, at, at the Milken conference was who can disrupt healthcare? The world's biggest companies. Who are the world's biggest companies? Platform companies. Um, I think Google. I think Apple, clearly. Um, Amazon's getting in, in, into this from a pill pack acquisition standpoint, right? Um, on, on the distribution side, that's a whole other ballgame. Why are PBMs, pharmacy benefit managers, taking 50 cents on the dollar from pharma companies? Um, so the CVS Aetna merger... Thing of beauty for CVS. Hey, guess what? CVS's stores are in big trouble, just like every other sector of retail. Where does CVS's margin really come from? The pharmacy stuff that they're doing, um, the healthcare stuff that they're doing. And um, PBMs are taking 50 cents on the dollar. So for every dollar I spend on a drug um, or on, on a pill, they're keeping 50 cents. I mean, what other distribution mechanism keeps that level of margin. I mean, literally nothing. Um, and they're basically doing all these one-off deals with the pharma companies to figure out how to give rebates and preferential treatment and how you're going to, you know, who's going to get the best placement and the biggest distribution. Right. And I think the thing that really prompted the Amazon acquisition of PillPack was that these PBMs were threatening the, the health insurance companies to say, if you can, if, if, if PillPack remains, we're going to, you know, this whole thing is going to change. They're trying to shut out PillPack, which is just basically, if you don't know what PillPack is, Amazon bought it for a billion dollars a few years ago. And they, they, it's actually awesome. What they started to do, I think they were working with geriatrics or like a, actually a very niche portion of the market. And what they're saying is, I'm going to send you the pills you need to take and I'm going to put them in little packages for you. So I know my mom, she actually has one of those seven day little pill containers with every day of the week and then they get all the pills in the in the box and then you got to put them into the into the container yeah, I mean, it can be as simple as you know certain vitamins and things oh my doctor said i should take more vitamin d or whatever it is so right. i can get that and i know i have to take this every day and it, it makes it very easy and they do that for you and they give right. you a little packet and just say eat this packet every day and they, I mean, they mail awesome. it to you and it and and they don't have all the overhead and all these all this overhead from all these stores that no one is using and no one really needs. Um, and by the way, if you're older, it's actually harder for you to get up and then go to the store and get your stuff. It's actually easier for it just to be mailed to me. So like the whole PBM concept is that, oh, we are, you know, we have proximity to all these people and we can now give you better access. It's, it's a load of baloney. Um, so anyway, lots of change, hopefully coming to healthcare. And I think the big tech, platforms and monopolies are going to be able to crack this nut and they're working on it. And I really do wish them the best and, and share no empathy for these incumbents um, that, that could make more money if they did embrace this. And more importantly, would be able to save more lives. It's a real shame. Okay. Last topic of today, B2B. We've spoken a lot about B2B and the different things going on in B2B, but even more than we've got a, what, a, like a $20 trillion economy. Um, they say healthcare is 15% of that. So it's maybe $3 trillion. Consumer retail in the U.S. is $2.5 trillion. Okay. B2B distribution is 6 to $8 trillion. I don't think people understand the magnitude of how big this is. And you now have four big tech platform, four of the biggest companies in the world in B2B, you have Amazon, $10 billion GMV run rate, growing at 20% a month, not a quarter, not a year, a month. You have Walmart in B2B, actively in B2B, not just saying we're getting into B2B, in B2B. eBay, $4 billion GMV business. In B2B. In B2B. 
And lastly, Alibaba. Oh, just the biggest. Um, by the way, Alibaba, which has $800 billion in GMV in China. Amazon in total has $277 billion in GMV. It's two to three times the size of Amazon, basically from just one market in total throughput. They're here. They bought a company called Open Sky about a year and a half ago, turned it into basically Alibaba B2B in North America. <clears throat> and they, you know, they've done a put a deal with Office Depot and they're making a push. Four of the biggest companies in the world in B2B distribution. You have six to eight trillion dollar market across 15 to 20 different verticals. That's everything from industrial supplies, um, office supplies, um, electrical supplies, medical supplies. Actually, the biggest B2B distributors are medical supply distributors, um, dentist supplies, building materials, metal supplies, chemicals, plastics. I don't know. There's a few in there I'm forgetting. It's a lot. It's huge. And it's all going to come crashing down. Um, here's why. Every one of those verticals I mentioned is fragmented. Every one of those verticals has a lack of pricing transparency. Every one of those verticals has very commoditized products where at least 40% of the stuff me as a business customer am buying, I share no brand affinity with those manufacturers. A lot of bits availability and price and making sure I get the right product on time. Yes, exactly. Is it an efficient buying process? Am I getting the best deal? You know, is it trustworthy? And guess what? That is where marketplaces thrive. What are the two key value props of a marketplace? The widest product catalog selection. So now that makes, gives me the most efficient buying process because now I don't have to go and shop around. How many times if you're a B2B, if you're a B2B customer, do you call up somewhere, they give you a quote, they only have eight of the products. Actually, a lot of the time, you need to go now chase down two other people for the two other products, or you know they got to call you back in a couple hours. It's a, it's a waste of time. It doesn't need to be working that way. And these marketplaces rip that fraction out. Big, frac big friction, um, especially if you're a small business customer and you're working from eight in the morning till six o'clock at night, and then you're on the job. How are you going to now source all this stuff on your own? A lot, a lot of the, these kind of small business customers end up doing it after hours when they have to go and try to find this stuff. Right. So it's actually much better for their schedule. A. B is marketplaces start from the bottom up, not from the top down. So they start in these small, small business customers. They start in these small mom and pop distributors. And there are a bunch of small mom and pop distributors in every single vertical of B2B distribution, except for electronic distribution, which I'll get to in a second. <clears throat> but so you've got small fragmentation on the demand on the supply side. And then the big kahuna is you have no pricing transparency. And the lack of pricing transparency is the margin opportunity for the B2B distributor. There's a lot of fat in this industry. If you if we look at a Granger's SGNA, their SGNA and fulfillment warehousing costs are probably about 30%. They probably have about a 10% um, EBITDA net income profit margin. They're doing a little over $10 billion in revenue. They're making over a billion dollars a year in profit, roughly, right? 30%, it's, I think it's about 50-50. I think it's about 15% SGNA. It's about 15% fulfillment and warehouse. There's a lot of meat on that bone. Marketplaces rip the meat off that bone and pass those efficiencies and those margin savings to the customer. So now when you bring pricing transparency into the situation, not only do they run more efficiently, but then they just, you're, you're ripping out the margin and giving it to the customer. So the abnets, the arrows of the world in the electronic industry probably have definitely have less than a 10% SGNA. So they're running much more efficiently. Okay. And then they're not making, you know, a 10% profit margin that Granger's making a lot of meat on that bone. So what the marketplaces are doing is saying, you know what, your margin is my opportunity. I'm going to let third party suppliers post prices and the best price wins the buy box. And then that's what the customer is going to buy. And so now I don't need all these contract agreements with mid to large size customers. I embrace the spot buy, right? And the spot buy is literally the, the marketplace always has it available. So you don't need the contract for these common commodity type items. Yes. So I get better prices. 
you know, it's the most efficient version of going out for an RFP. Basically, you're having an RFP happen every second with hundreds of suppliers competing on the prices at every moment in every time. And um, even even the electronic industry sees this where a semiconductor could could vary by 10 or 20 percent in price in different parts of the country. The reason why the electronic industry is one of the only verticals that is somewhat marketplace resistant. And by the way, it's really only for Arrow and Avnet. All of the smaller B2B distributors in the electronic industries are also susceptible. And here's why. It's one of the only verticals that actually has any sort of brand recognition. There are four or five chip manufacturers. And those chip manufacturers will only sell to customers if they know who the customer is. So they're working with Arrow and Avnet. And Arrow and Avnet is giving the name of the customer to the to the chip manufacturer and the supply chain is consolidated on the manufacturing base and very integrated with the big distributors and very integrated right. with the big distributors. That's why you see Arrow Avnet at, at over $20 billion in revenue. And then I think the number three players at like $2 billion in revenue, the smaller players are selling the commoditized stuff, which is also susceptible to marketplace disruption because it's commoditized. It's pack and shippable. It's capacitors. It's passives. No one cares who the manufacturer is. So I don't think you're going to be able to break up the manufacturing lock hold on chip manufacturing anytime soon, which means an Aero and Avnet, probably two of the only actual marketplace resistant um, B2B distributors in the entire industry. And actually, if anything, if I were them, what I would do is then reinvest and say, I'm going to go and now embrace the marketplace on the commoditized on stuff. The commoditized stuff. Right. Because guess what? My core business is actually somewhat protected. So I should build a moat called a B2B marketplace and actually just commoditize the complement, commoditize the stuff that's just going to go away anyway to a marketplace. And it, I don't know, for Aero Abnet, maybe it's 10 or 15% of revenue. It's, it's, it's a material sum when you're doing 20 plus billion dollars in revenue, but it's not actually where does the margin come from? The margin's really coming from the 70 plus percent, which is on the chips. So there is a Massive disruption coming to B2B distribution. It's inevitable. It's really just a matter of when does it arrive? And those pack and ship industries like MRO, like electrical, um, like medical supplies, which Amazon's making a big push into, yep. um, those ones are going to be the ones that see the disruption first. Now, here's the thing. They've been doing this for a few years. And you have distributors saying, oh, we're doing e-com, right? We just were talking about Cardinal Health the other day, saying we have a few hundred thousand products in our e-commerce store. You have Granger saying the same thing. We added a few hundred thousand products this past quarter. And basically what we've said is you need to be talking about adding millions of SKUs. You need to be talking about how Walmart bought Jet.com and within 12 months of buying Jet.com added 45 million SKUs. You need to be adding tens of millions of SKUs in 12 months. If you want to be able to compete against the large tech monopolies that are coming into B, aren't coming, that are in B2B distribution. And unless you can handle that kind of scale, you're not going to win. And then it's really a question of this. Does the marketplace own a minority position? Is it 40% of the market? Is it 60, 80% of the market? And then what are the distributors um, owning? And so, you're already seeing not just small mom and pop B2B distributors selling on Amazon with other pseudonyms. Yep. I know of multiple large billion dollar distributors selling on Amazon right now with other names. And you don't know that it's them, but they're selling and they're, they may not be selling hundreds of millions of dollars, but I know they're selling tens of millions of dollars in products right now. And, and what they're saying is, oh my God. I'm actually making great margin on this stuff. People are buying things that I don't sell in my core business. So they see it as incremental revenue. And that's the hook. That's how every marketplace gets you. And that's why no matter what industry consortium pulls together and comes together and says, we're never going to work with Amazon. We're going to shut Amazon out. It just won't work because there's too much fragmentation on the supply side. There's no brand affinity on the manufacturing side to the customer. It's commoditized products, many of which are pack and ship. And you're going to be able to say, I can make incremental revenue. This marketplace thing is inevitable. I might as well make a little bit more money. And that's exactly the right mentality. If you are a small to mid-sized B2B distributor, if you're a mid-sized B2B distributor, I'd be trying to sell my business so fast. I'd be trying to sell my business yesterday while there's cheap debt 
oh my Lord, I'd be out of this thing in two seconds. If I'm a large distributor and I'm actually in it for the long haul and I can't sell myself, you have to try to be a B2B marketplace. Otherwise, you have to start thinking to yourself, how do I move to a majority of my revenue coming from much less commoditized, right. more higher kind touch, of touch, value added services, higher touch, value added services, kind of like I'm selling a system to customers. That means your business five years from now is going to look very different than it does today. So very wh- different. Wh- whether regulated parts of the industry, whether you're embracing the disruption and going on the marketplace side and trying to figure out how do I you know own this this new model, doing similar stuff that I do today, or I'm going in a very different route. It's going to change. It's a question of which route you're going to go. And you know some of those distributors that are the big distributors today that are moving in the value added service route may be doing a lot less volume five years from now than they are doing today, even if the business still exists. Right. And that's, that's just, it's, it's going to happen. And, and when the dust settles over the next five to 10 years, this is going to take time. So even though the Grangers of the world aren't saying, you know, oh, we're not seeing it affect, we're seeing huge growth on our e-commerce. What you need to understand is that every one of these verticals that I mentioned is over a hundred billion dollars in size, pretty much. So if Amazon's doing $10 billion in GMV and they're still growing at 20% a month, they're spread across multiple verticals. So Amazon may only be doing $1 or $2 billion in MRO. And they're starting with the small to mid-sized customers, but they are winning large customers like Stanford, which should be very scary to large distributors because um, that's a very value-add service, high-touch type of customer. And they're still winning them and putting a couple extra bodies on the account to get Stanford the stuff that they need. So um, I think when you really start to see it impact the distributor's earnings, when they might miss one or two quarters in a row, I think you're still a couple of years away from seeing that. And they're going to be able to start doing digital advertising, which they've never done. Like they actually just started doing this in the past year or two. And they're going to be able to acquire some mid-sized customers, fine, and build an e-commerce business. But the e-commerce business model will never beat the marketplace model. And that's today's lesson. Thanks for joining us on Winner Take All. We'll talk to you tomorrow.